Thank you, worship team, for leading us in those uh, just such truth-filled songs that uh, definitely bring encouragement to our souls, especially uh, when we sing them in conjunction with hundreds of other people that feel the same way. Uh, what a great gift musical worship is. Um, this week, I actually really struggled uh, this week as to figure out how to best w- to preach this passage. What's the most useful way of preaching this passage that Warren uh, read to us earlier? Uh, there's actually quite a bit of academic type things that could be brought out in the text, and it's really easy to get lost in the weeds if we venture in really far into it. And so today, we're actually going to venture into the tall grass a little bit, but we'll stay long enough just to establish an important point, and then we'll resist taking the dozens of rabbit trails that we could find there. And what we do get into, hopefully, will be enough for you to chew on throughout the week and digest and also prove effective in helping you become more mature and complete and whole. I think that's what James would want as he wrote this. And hopefully what is shared today will assist you in taking one more step down the highway of holiness as you move from knowing what to do to actually doing what you know you should be doing. And so um, with that in mind, I'm going to use some very strong language um, today to start this message off. The truth is, is that I don't like the truth that these verses announce to be my reality. And in a sense, I actually hate the truth of these verses because the truth of these verses is so ugly and it tells me that I can't actually pin the blame of my wrecked not life on anyone else but me. It's very contrary to what the world would say. The truth of these verses tells me that I am the cause of the proverbial train wreck or car wreck that people can't take their eyes off of. The wreck was my fault. It was a single vehicle accident. Now, I come from Chicago, and I still laugh when people talk about traffic in Linden (laughs) because of road construction. I'm like, yeah, you're right, traffic, right? Um, In Chicago, there's these things called gapers delays. The weather would be fantastic, and it wouldn't even have been the peak of rush hours, but the expressways would be nearly at a standstill because there was a car accident on the side of the road. Everyone would just slow down to try to get a glimpse of the destruction. Even if the accident had been moved off to the side of the road completely by emergency vehicles, there would still be a massive gaper's delay as people would slow down and their eye would just be drawn to the destruction and the wreckage. And these verses are telling me that I am the wreck. It's me. Hi, I'm the problem. It's me, right? Taylor Swift is finally saying something that the biblical authors have been saying for thousands of years. Some of you don't know what I'm talking about, but it's a big thing this week, right? It's me. Hi, I'm the problem. It's me. These verses are telling me that I'm the wreck. The destruction that has the potential to devastate my life is not something that exists outside of me. It actually resides in me. There's a deep-seated destruction that is planted within me, and eventually it will see the light of day and bear its destructive fruit for destructive purposes and fill my world with destruction if I don't dig it out and expose it to the light of Christ And let the light of the Christ, of the light of the world himself, nail it to the cross and deliver that final death blow to my deceitful desires. Here's the thing. 
James is going to indicate that my biggest problem in life isn't outside of me. The problem is inside of me. I am the crash that is causing the gaper's delay. And it's not just me. And it's not just the person sitting next to you. It's all of us. It's you too. And if you're sitting there wondering, well, I hope the person next to me is hearing this, I'm hoping that you're hearing it. Okay? I hope we all hear this. I hope the person preaching it hears this. We have all felt the pull of the reality of these verses on our lives. We are all exhibits A through Z demonstrating that these verses, like every other word of God, proves true. And this isn't a light matter. If you think this is a light matter or just something that you can throw your two cents of a perspective at on social media platforms because of an album release, hear me when I say to you, it isn't. It isn't just a matter of life and death. This is actually a matter of eternal life and eternal death. Today is a kill or be killed type of talk. Because this is what the text says. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial... For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So let's ask God to help settle this truth into our minds so that we can see the danger that lies within us and then look for the way of escape that God has promised to each and every one of us who face temptation. Let's pray. God, there's uh, obviously a lot in this word, more than what we know, but we're encouraged earlier on in this epistle of James, to ask you for wisdom. And so, God, we would seek it right now. Right now, would you give us insight into the truthfulness of these verses and see how we see it cause destruction in our lives. And as we venture into the weeds a little bit, into the tall grass, I know that it would be hard to, or very easy to get sidetracked with academic-type things, but I pray that we wouldn't. I pray that we would be able to put the... The, the rubber to the road in our lives, so to speak, and make progress down the highway of holiness that you've called us to walk on. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So, so there's a ton of things that we could talk about in this text. There's a lot, and I really struggle with how, to best, how do we best utilize our time to preach on this passage, and this is what I came up with. First, we're going to venture into the weeds a bit, and we're going to attempt to discern the difference between a trial, a test, and a temptation. Now, this is where it's going to be really easy to get lost or feel overwhelmed in the sense that we cannot keep up with the questions that might pop up in our heads if we're thinking theologically and doctrinally about these things. So there might be some tough sledding for a bit, but we'll only go so far in because I want to take some time to identify where our temptations actually come from. And then finally, to close off the message, we're going to briefly give a sneak peek at next week's sermon to entice us to come back and learn how to engage in a battle with temptations that are coming at us with brass knuckles on. This is, this is kill or be killed talk. All right, so let's start working our way through the laundry list today. Number one, trials, tests, and temptations. Oh my. 
we started watching The Wizard of Oz with our boys the other day. They've, they've listened to the story, and they're like, hey, we should show the movie. That, that movie's a little creepy, right? <laughs> they didn't even get to all the creepy parts yet, but even just the, the tornado at the beginning was enough, right? Uh, but there's a famous line in the movie that sounds a lot like our first talking point. What is it? Lions and tigers and bears. Oh, my, right? These are pretty intimidating realities to deal with. If you're Dorothy and you need to go on an adventure to get back to Kansas, but along the way you run into a few friends like a scarecrow and a tin man, but they warn you of the potential of lions, tigers, and bears, you better ready yourself, right? Now, that's what we're warned of here in James 1. Now, for those of us that are familiar with that story, we know that for Dorothy, the lion ended up proving to be a friend, like the scarecrow and the tin man, but that's not the case for one of these three realities that James brings up. Now, there's a lot of wordplay going on here in the Greek that's been interpreted for us by many of our English translations, but hopefully it will prove helpful to go back to the original language for a bit in order to see the distinction between some of the words. But before I do that, we have to remind ourselves of two massive rules of interpreting the Bible. So here it is. Rule number one is context is king. What we mean by that, what we mean by context is king, means is that we're indicating that the surrounding context of any specific verse or even word should be having to be understood as having a direct impact on the meaning of any given phrase or word within the context in which it's found. Ignoring the context of any specific verse or word in the Bible hinders the actual process of coming to a proper understanding of the author's intent for writing. So not only do we need to understand any given word in the immediate context of the author, but also we need to interpret it in light of the full revelation of Scripture. And that actually brings up the second massive rule of biblical interpretation, and that's this. We must let Scripture interpret Scripture. We have to allow the whole of Scripture's teaching to have a direct impact on how we interpret specific words in the text. I know this is heavy stuff, but this is the groundwork that we need to lay before we look. Because what we're going to see is when we look, we're going to see one Greek word that is translated in two different ways. The same word, at least the Greek root word, is translated in two different ways. And the reason we're able to do that is because we are aware that if we don't translate the word in two separate ways, then we will have determined that either James is speaking out of both sides of his mouth... Or, he can't be trusted and he makes no sense, or even worse, God might be found guilty of actually acting contrary to his holy nature by tempting us with evil. We can't have that. We know that scripture as a whole teaches that. That can't be what James was trying to say, so we must let scripture interpret scripture. And it will come up again as we look at chapter 2, where on the surface of things, James seems to contradict some of the Apostle Paul's teaching to the Galatians and the Romans. So with these rules firmly rooted in our minds, let's jump back into the deep weeds. Look at James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. It says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials, which is the Greek word perosmos, of various kinds, and you know that the testing, which is the word dokimion, of your faith produces steadfastness. So we have these trials that actually serve us. These trials 
act like a test that can create opportunities for us to make our faith whole and complete. It gives us a chance to be steadfast. So, so far, so good. We get that. Now let's fast forward to verse 12 of the same chapter where James says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, perasmas, for when he has stood the test, the same word, dokimas, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So we see a very similar formula here in this text. A blessing is pronounced on the one who demonstrates whole and complete faith throughout the duration of the trial that they are facing. The trial, once again, is like a test. And in these passages, although none of us like trials or tests, per se, they're all producing something positive for us. These trials are coming from God and are used by Him to assess our faith. And they give us an opportunity to develop spiritual integrity. So with that in mind, James says, Why don't you count it all joy? In verse 2, that's what he says. And then in verse 12, he says, you know, you're going to get a crown of life for this stuff. It's a very positive documentation of these things. These are very positive exhortations that lead to a very positive result. And so we have trials that produce life, okay? Let's keep moving in the text. Into the weeds a little bit deeper. Because what we see next is a transition in that instead of trials producing life, We see temptations that produce death, polar opposites. But what's actually very interesting is that James uses the same word that he once translated as trial is now translated as temptation. And you're like, whoa, are we playing fast and loose with the text? Are we allowed to do that, just kind of make up Greek meanings? How do we know if we're translating this word right? Because in James 1.13, he says this, Let no one say when he is tempted, peirazo. It's the same word as he said in verses 2 and 3 and verse 12. But now it's the word tempted. I am being peirazoed by God. I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be aperastos, which is just the negation of that, like not tempted. For God cannot tempt with evil. And he himself, peirazo, tempts no one. So how do we know if we're translating this word right? How do we know if we're facing a trial that is coming to us from the Lord that's going to produce something positive for us, or is this a temptation that is seeking to destroy me? How do you know the difference? Or could it be that the circumstance that I'm facing is being used as a test from the Lord, but the evil that's dwelling within me utilizes the test to bring about my destruction? How do we distinguish this, especially if the same Greek word is used for both experiences? So let's remember our two two rules. Context is king, and let Scripture interpret Scripture. Let me illustrate this of how the same word can mean something vastly different depending on the context and depending upon what we understand to be true about people in general. For instance, people in general like their backs scratched. Is that true? Do you like to have your back scratched? Okay. If you do, make sure that you know your spouse knows that, right? People, people like their back scratched, most of them, okay? It feels good. It's comforting. It's an extension of care. Like, I'm just kind of with you right now. So let's say that getting your back scratched is considered a positive experience. And the general consensus of the population would say, yeah, I agree with that. Getting your back scratched feels pretty good, right? So if I said to you, hey, can you scratch my back? And you said, yes, I would, and most people would be happy. And they would take that as a positive experience. In fact, they might say, or I might say, if you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. And you'll say, hey, that's great. 
You know, that, I, I'd like that. That'd be a positive thing for me. But if I said to you, um, hey, by the way, I saw you riding your bike the other day and noticed you got really close to my car with your handlebars. And I walked over there and I saw a long scratch on my car right where your handlebars would be. Is there any chance you scratched my car? And if you were an honest person and you had indeed scratched my car, then the scratch would be a rather negative experience. And if I said to you, well, you scratched my car, I'm going to scratch yours. You'd probably not want me to do it. Why? Because you would interpret it as a negative experience as well. You wouldn't want it either. So you scratch my back, positive. You scratch my car, negative. The context really matters here. The context actually determines the meaning of the word, even though it's the same word. That's kind of like what's going on in our passage today. The same word, perazzo, can mean trial or temptation depending on the context. Does that make sense? I know we've labored at this, but we, I want to show you, I've, I felt an obligation to show you, not just to have a cursory reading of the word, but to jump in for a little bit in the deep weeds, because I want to show you that sometimes you really actually have to work hard to understand the Bible. There's a difference between just Bible reading and Bible study. You actually need both of them to grow in your walk with Christ. You need, you need to read a, a bunch of it all the time, and you need to study some of it really deeply. For spiritual growth. So hopefully, we've established that there is a difference between a trial used of the Lord to bring about something positive in our lives and temptations that seek to bring about destruction. And if we've done that, then we've covered verse 13, which says, Let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So the long and short of it is this, God will certainly put you through trials, but he will never tempt you to sin against him. And I know that there's more things that we could talk about from verse 13, a lot of different places that we could go in the Bible to talk about this, but let's get out of the weeds and tackle one very important issue, because I think what we need to identify today, what will be most useful of our time is to identify the source of those temptations, because it has to come from somewhere And it's not coming from God, and what we're going to discover is where it's coming from isn't very pretty. Because where does temptation come from? That's the question that humanity has struggled to answer throughout the duration of its existence. Throughout the ages, humans have tried to actually pin the blame of temptation on things that exist outside of them and outside of us. I'm not the problem, it's everything else surrounding me. We see it in the garden narrative of the Bible, when Adam actually blames Eve for giving him the fruit. And then he even has the audacity to blame God himself for giving him Eve, right? This massive blame game. And then Eve pipes up, right? And then Eve, in turn, blames the serpent. It's his fault, he deceived me. Notice the logic It's always somebody else's fault. It's your fault or the tree's fault or the serpent's fault or God, it's your fault for the circumstances that are outside of my control that you placed me in. Why'd you put me in the garden, God? It's always somebody else's fault. We see this in the first pages of the Bible and we actually see it in Greek mythology as well. A lot of you have read the story of Homer's epic poem called The Odyssey. This is a myth that tells the story of Odysseus. Odysseus is a human who tries to do the right thing. 
He usually, but not always, pays attention to what the gods tell him to do. He has to leave his wife Penelope behind and he's sent off to war to do battle against many evils and temptations, all so that in the end he can return to his one true love. And as he journeys, Odysseus pays special attention to a warning that's given to him about the inhabitants of an island that they must sail past on their journey. And here's the warning. Many of you are familiar with it. He's told that there are creatures called sirens who are actually two monsters, but they're pretending to be beautiful women with amazing voices. And what these creatures do is they allure sailors who seek to pass their island. They try to entice them to stop and to come to their island. They claim that they just want to entertain them with their beautiful melodies, but what they really want, however, is to kill them. And so one of the gods advises Odysseus to put wax in his ears as well as the ears of his crewmen so as they passed, they would not hear the siren's song. It sounded reasonable to Odysseus and he gets the crew to cut off access to the seductive sound waves as they stuff their ear canals with bee wax and then the ship continues to sail toward the island. But Odysseus wants to hear the song and still survive. So he's caught a case of curiosity. Will it kill him? And so he orders, he devises this plan. He orders his sailors to tie him to the mast of the ship. And when he's firmly tied, he and his men who have the beeswax in their ears, they row the ship alongside the island. And then Odysseus hears the magical song of the sirens as it floats out over the waters And when he hears the words of the music, he becomes enchanted. He wants to throw all caution to the wind, plunge into the waves, and swim to the island. He wants what the sirens are singing about, and so he actually strains really hard to the ties that bound him to the mass of the ship, so much that it cuts deeply into his flesh and his back and in his arms, and he is furious, and he scowls at his ear-plugged crewmen, and he demands that he be freed. Now to Odysseus, who is bewitched by the song, the sirens look beautiful, but to his crew that's been made deaf by the beeswax, the sirens are hungry, vicious monsters with crooked claws, and they're under no circumstance want to go anywhere near them, and so they row harder and harder away from the shoreline until the song is out of earshot. And only then, once they're out of earshot, they unplug their ears, they unbind their captain, and they avoid destruction. Great story, compelling. I remember the first time it was read to me, like, wow, vivid, memorable, told and passed down from Greek mythology from one generation to another. But here's the problem that's not the way James says temptation works. What does James say? James says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. It's coming from within him. The brokenness isn't just some monster pretending to be something attractive on an island. James says, we're the monster. The monster's in me. 
And no matter how much beeswax I stuff into my ears, I will still hear the siren song coming from within me, much like when you hear a familiar tune and it gets stuck in your head and plays on repeat, driving you crazy. My biggest problem doesn't exist outside of me. There's rottenness that is in me that is both haunting and seductively soothing and promises to soothe me if I just indulge it. The problem for Odysseus wasn't that there were sirens singing on an island. The problem for Odysseus was that he wanted to hear the song. That's the problem. This insidious nature, this insidiousness is nothing that I can safeguard against. With anything external like beeswax in my ears or ropes that tie me to a mast of a ship, it comes from inside of me, from the desire level. So yes, you can put internet filters on your computer that might make it more difficult for you to access something that you want that will destroy you and all the ones that you love. But what happens when what you want access to is stronger than your makeshift efforts to fight? You'll find the loophole. Or you'll just use your imagination. Yes, you can make concerted efforts to dam up the words in your mouth before they come destructively pouring out of your mouth, causing every member of your family to want nothing to do with you for a time and potentially for the rest of time. But what's happening in your heart that's produced those words that are longing to be spilled out and that will eventually come out because one day the dam will break and the lips will become loose You don't need more self-control. You need a heart transplant. We have to face the facts, and it's ugly, but the reason we sin is because we want to. James uses a metaphor from the world of fishing that's quite chilling. James says that we have desires that are illicit and out of bounds. Often when this word is used in the New Testament, it carries a sexual connotation to it, but it can have a broader meaning as well that includes any longing that is anything that outside of what God has said is okay, anything that God has prohibited if we long for it, even if it's just a piece of fruit from a tree, outside of God's will, that's that's an illicit desire. We sin because we want to. These desires act like bait on a hook that surfaces in the waters of our lives and it looks so enticing. The Turkish delight that Edmund sought after to his own demise and the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe was something he wanted more than anything and so he sacrificed everything to ensure that he got it. He was lured and enticed and he bit down and he took the bait and then immediately the hook was set and suddenly he becomes enslaved to an even more cruel slave master than his own desires as he's paraded around Narnia by an evil witch. This is kill or be killed talk. We sin because we want to. We sin because we have the desire to. Peter actually says that we are at war with our own desires in 1 Peter 2.11, he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Same word there, desires of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. War's ugly, and it hurts. And there's a war for your soul happening within your own desires. 
The word passion is the same word as desire here. Even after being born again, we have a passion for old nature type of things. And Paul says in Romans 7 that he's actually at war within himself. And we too might be the Romans 7 man. We may hate sin with a passion, but we also have a conflicting passion to indulge in it. Remaining sin within us, although we are dead to it, still is enticing to us. And it still has the ability to drag us away. So this is rough and rugged real talk. This is kill or be killed talk. We sin because we are weak. And sin's deadly clutches on us is still so very strong. So what are we to do? What's the solution? Well, this is where we're going to give a sneak peek at next week's message in order to whet your appetite to come back. What should we do with our sinful desires that are in us, that cause us temptation, that can bring forth death? What are we to do with them? Well, maybe we need to learn something from the practice of firefighters who are assigned the unenviable task of putting out forest fires. What do I mean by that? Well, they have, in their case, they have many options to deal with this raging forest fire and they have many options and strategies at their disposal, but one of them is to fight fire with fire. Sometimes, setting an intentional control burn of a strip of forest is what needs to be done in order to create a barrier to the oncoming forest fire This control burn will use up all the available combustible fuel for the fire that is out of control. And so they fight fire with fire and create this barrier. We must fight our out of control destructive desires with a more controlled, intentional, stronger desire. That's our only hope. Well, what could be more compelling than my sinful desires, than indulging in these things that feel natural to me? That everything in the world is saying, just go for it. What could be more compelling than my sinful desires? What could grab my attention and lure and entice me to say no to ungodliness? What might capture my heart like nothing else ever has? What might be a more tantalizing truth to dwell on? What is it that might prove more fascinating or honorable or just or pure or lovely or commendable or excellent? Is there anything worthy of praise that might exist that could bind my wandering, lust-filled heart to itself so that it will powerfully and irresistibly and effectively get me to say no to the remaining ungodliness that still regrettably lives in me, which is evident so often in my fears and my failures? Is there any living hope out there? that can train me to say no to the destructive desires that still dwell in my heart. If so, someone please tell me we are all desperate. And so in the year A.D. 63, after being released from his first imprisonment in Rome, the Apostle Paul writes Titus, who is doing ministry with the vile inhabitants of the island of Crete. People that were known for indulging in every one of their dark desires. People like you and me. And Paul writes to them and to all of us 
these words. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Our only hope is to receive the grace of God that has appeared and that has brought salvation to us. Grace that has led us safe thus far, and grace that will train us to say no to the wrong things and yes to the right things, and grace that will accompany all of us along the narrow way until we are home. There is only one hope out there, and that's to have your heart be more compelled by what God has done for you, even when you are still a sinner, even when you are his enemy, Christ died for us. What kind of love is that? Whoa! That's just just enough to get me to stop looking inside and say, that is amazing. I can't believe that my God would do that for me. And that could capture my heart like the sinful desires that dwell in me never have before. And I fight fire with fire. And I say, I want to follow that God. He is my only hope in life and death, Christ alone, Christ alone. What's my only confidence? That my soul to him belongs. Who holds our days within his hand? What comes apart from his command? What will keep us to the end? The love of Christ in which we stand. I want to introduce a new song to the congregation. I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward as we close. And I want to sing this song with you all. Let's all stand and sing about our only hope in life and death is in, found in Christ alone. And when we find it there, we sing hallelujah because our hope can spring eternal. He is our only hope in life and death. Let's go ahead and stand as we sing this song and bring our service to a close.